Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Feeling blessed to be in dialogue with you today. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. In this hour, a conversation about colorism. Where does colorism begin? Where does colorism end? And what exactly are the pretty privileges for dark-skinned peoples? Dr. Sarah L. Webb joins us in this hour for a conversation about the role of colorism, featurism, and texturism in the African-American community. I'm delighted to have Dr. Sarah L. Webb on for the hour. Dr. Webb, how are you today? I'm doing excellent, Tavis. I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you here, and I'm glad we got an hour. There's a whole lot to talk about on this subject matter for the next hour, and uh, we're (laughs) going to get right at it. Let me start with this. Um, The effects of racism are undoubtedly conspicuous, but colorism seems to, how about I put this, seems to live among us a bit more insidiously. Let me start by asking why Mm -hmm. you think that is. I think part of the reason that colorism is the lesser known is because of the vocabulary that we tend to use. So when we say things like, uh, my person's skin color, right? Or I don't see color or don't judge people based on their color. A lot of people are using that as a synonym or a euphemism for race Mm -hmm. and not taking it literally. And so there's this misunderstanding that when we talk about race, that can come in many different skin tones. But also, you know, it's hard to talk about what we don't measure. And so in the United States, in this country, and a lot of other countries, we take information about racial identities, about ethnic identities on the census, on job application forms, on doctor's forms and school forms, right? We collect information about people's racial identities and ethnic identities. But there's not as much of a attention to differences within those social categories and within those groups. And so skin tone is one of those things that flies under the radar, partly because we don't have metrics or practices in place for tracking it or measuring it or keeping up with it. Mm -hmm. Two things on vocabulary, since you used the word vocabulary. um, In a moment, I'm going to ask you for the sake of our audience being on the same page and making sure we don't leave Mm -hmm. anybody behind in this conversation. We're going to define, you're going to define colorism, Featurism, texturism, and we'll jump from there. Before we get to those terms uh, and get those definitions, um, you mentioned, uh, speaking of vocabulary, uh, people often say, you know, I don't see color. I, I, this issue was raised mm-hmm. on this program was today. Wednesday, we raised this issue on Monday. Monday was the King holiday. Uh, and in conversation okay. about Dr. King, uh, I made the point in talking to one of our guests, uh, as a student of Dr. King and as the author of a book about Dr. King, that if you look uh, through King's in, entire corpus, his entire body mm-hmm. of work, you will never find King using the phrase colorblind anything. That was not his framework. Right. That was not his belief. Um, that was not his mm-hmm. formulation, this notion of colorblindness. I know when people use that term, oftentimes, not always, oftentimes they're well-meaning when they use it, but it's a term that I don't like and I can't stand for a lot of reasons, which I ain't got time to unpack mm-hmm. right about now. But when you hear people, given the work that you do, when you, when you hear folks say mm-hmm. in any context, political, social, economic, cultural, uh, when you hear folks use that phrase colorblind, how does that term strike you? Well, I think part of the issue is that we assume that because things are different, that they inherently have to be less than or better than. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is not difference. The problem is our attitude about that difference. And so when people say, oh, we have to be colorblind or I don't see color, they're making the assumption that if I notice that you're different from me, then I have to inherently judge that or be prejudiced against that. And so it's not that 
um, people see color or don't see color. It's what they perceive or believe about that color that's the problem. And I always say, you know, if you have to pretend that I'm not black in order to treat me fairly, then that is the inherent problem. The problem is not that I am black. It's the fact that you feel like my blackness is a problem. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my, my commentary on that belief. I guess the question is, would you take it that way? Yeah, that is to say, if someone had to see you as not black to treat you justly, exactly. would, you, would you be okay with that? Uh, no, because I am personally proud of my blackness, right? right? And so I think I love my skin tone. I love my hair texture. I love my features. I love my ethnicity. And so if you have to ignore all those things or look over those things to see my worth and my value and my dignity as a human, then you have to check yourself because yeah. I want you to be able to see that and appreciate it and celebrate it. You know, I, I hear that argument and just I'm just playing devil's advocate for the sake of the fact that it's talk radio, right? Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I would argue the other, again, just for the sake of, uh, of debate, that if the only way you can revel in my humanity and respect my humanity and to treat me justly is to not see my color, maybe I'll take it. Because ultimately what I, what I care more about <laughs> is not you celebrating the melanin in my skin, but treating me mm. with equity and, and justly and, and fairly and equitably. You know, I, I don't know. Mm. It's, it's a fascinating debate, one of those barroom brawls we could have for hours if we had the time. We don't. There's a great deal more stuff to talk about, uh, more important stuff. When we come forward, just getting started in this conversation with Dr. Sarah L. Webb, uh, we're going to get her to define some of those terms that you're going to hear a lot in the hour to come, colorism, featureism, texturism, uh, uh, phenotype. We can throw that in. Go get some definitions here, uh, set the groundwork, and then we will build on the foundation that Dr. Sarah L. Webb is going to uh, erect for us as we move through this hour in this conversation about colorism, uh, where it begins, where it ends, and beyond. You're listening to Dr. Sarah L. Webb on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Tavis Smiley and Dr. Sarah L. Webb on KBLA Talk 1580. She's our guest in this hour as we uh, talk about um, colorism. Um, she's an international speaker, consultant, and a coach who started the global initiative Colorism Healing. We'll get to that as well later in this hour. Dr. Webb, let's define some terms, and then we will go from there. Um, I, I think the terms I, I most want to get some definitions from, as you see it, given the work that you do, colorism, featureism, texturism, take it away. All right. So first I want to say that the ism piece is really important, and that indicates that this is a social system. So when we talk about colorism, there is a social system, or another way to think about it is a social hierarchy mm. in which people are ranked according to their skin tones. And when we look at colorism, the rankings fall into the place of lighter skin tones being placed at the top of the social hierarchy and darker skin tones being placed at the bottom of the hierarchy. And that impacts things like health outcomes, educational attainment, the way people are treated in the justice system, the legal system, the way people are represented in media. And featureism, similarly, is a social hierarchy based on a person's facial features. And so a lot of these things are rooted in white supremacist thinking and anti-black thinking. And so if you have a thinner nose or if you have blue eyes or thin lips, the way people typically think Europeans look, then those features are favored in the society and people are judged more favorably if they have those features. And so then texturism falls right in line with that where the more Eurocentric your hair texture is, the more value people place on your phenotype, which is your physical features, your physical appearance. 
And so when we think about Afro-textured hair, right, or in this day and age, we call it 4C hair, type 4 hair, where, you know, people can get locks and pick their hair out in froze or do cornrows. The typical hair textures that we associate with black people are people of African descent. Those textures have been demonized and marginalized. There have been legislation passed to, you know, destigmatize them and to avoid this discrimination based on those hair textures. And so when we see the, the systems in place, yes, it has a lot to do with attitudes, but a lot of it also has to do with practices, norms, policies, procedures, and actual outcomes in the larger society. I hear your point loud and clear. First of all, beautiful, uh, beautiful definitions. I thank you. That was uh, that was that was uh, adroitly and deftly done. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> so now I can move from there. So I, I hear your point about mm-hmm. these isms and what these isms essentially mean is that these uh, that this, there's a social system in place, uh, a social hierarchy right. in place, as you laid out beautifully. Um, let me just ask a point blank question. Who constructed this hierarchy or is it like being in Hawaii? And you see a rock formation from a volcano. It just it just mm-hmm. formed. Did, did, did it just form or did somebody construct this hierarchy? Well, there are people who will argue that human beings innately are tribal um, animals, right? Mm-hmm. And so we tend to have prejudices. People seem foreign to us or they you know, are from a different tribe or a different culture, right? There's some natural tendencies that humans have to other folks. However... There were European colonialists in in the quest for greater power, greater resources, greater wealth, and greater domination that leveraged that nature within human beings, right? And so when we look at European colonialism, they saw themselves as superior, right, Europeans over the indigenous and native peoples around the world, whether that be in Africa and Asia or in the Americas. They leveraged that type of behavior and ideology to set themselves at the top of the hierarchy. And so they, a lot of it has to do with then them propagating the ideology so that we internalized it, Tavis. And that's where the other side of the equation comes in. Yeah. So it was established and created as a result of European conquest and imperialism around the globe. And then through very deliberate, very strategic and insidious methods, they brainwashed the people and through violence, actually. I also want to say that there was physical violence and ideological violence and emotional violence that sort of kind of broke a lot of our people, a lot of our ancestors, so that we internalized it. And when I say internalizing it, I also want to say that sometimes people engage in things like colorism and textualism as a matter of survival, right? So even if there's a part of our psyche that knows it's wrong, um, I, I just have a lot of compassion for our ancestors who were really trying to stay alive and really trying to survive. Um, but I say, fortunately, we are not in the same place that they were, and so we are more equipped now than ever to break free from these systems. Oh, it's getting rich now. It's getting rich. I got a whole bunch of questions based on what you just laid out. Let me ask <laughs> Let me ask this for starters, and, I, I, and I'll, I'll circle back. When you say survival, Bible, speaking of unpacking terms, are you talking about passing? Mm-hmm. So passing was one form of survival, right. but also, you know, you have the practice of, in different cultures, right? African-American cultures, but also black cultures in Central and South America that said, oh, I want my children to have better opportunities. So mm-hmm. let me straighten their hair, right? Or let me, you know, try to lighten their skin, either through intermarrying or skin bleaching creams, right? And so that was the coping mechanism are the ma- the strategies that a lot of our ancestors knew of. But also I will say that that was the options presented to them, right? So again, there's the strategic part on the 
assets of colonizers and oppressors to, to present those as your only option. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, let's get into the to the meat of this. Um, I am curious. Uh, and again, I'm glad this is an hour. You, you can just teach a master class. We all going you know, we're all going to take notes here uh, and learn from you. <laughs> Tell me more about the when, the where, the why, and the how of black folk, as you would put it, internalizing it. Uh, mm -hmm. I would I would say adopting you know this behavior, um, mm -hmm. uh, this white supremacist uh, attitude toward us. But tell me more, and again, you got some time here about the when, the where, the why, and the how we adopted that behavior, internalize it again, as you would put it. Mm -hmm. So, I'll. One of the speeches that really changed my life when I was in high school was one of Malcolm X's last speeches um, in 1965. And he talked about, you know, racism not just being an American problem, but it's a global problem. Mm -hmm. And some of the words that really struck out, stuck to me in that speech were that it was imagery. And he said that the people, the colonizers, the oppressors understood the power of imagery and of the image, and they used their ability to control images to mislead the people. And so the image can be a verbal description, right, of who you are. The image could be actual video footage, photographs, right, news media. And so when we think about what we see and what we take in, right, the eyes are directly connected to the brain. A lot of the brainwashing has happened through that lens or through that channel. And also I want to say, too, that you know, I talk about the concept of mirrors a lot. And so we come to understand ourselves based on the reflections of ourselves. And anything can be a mirror, right? And so when we look at textbooks or when we look at the system of slavery in and of itself being a mirror of how you're valued or how you're seen in society in the larger world, then without alternative perspectives, then that's the, the representation you have of yourself. And so again, oppressors and colonizers were able to control the mirrors that black people were able to look at, whether it be the system of a slave plantation, not being allowed to read, right, which would have been offered us an alternative perspective, an alternative mirror, right? And so intentionally removing the opportunity to see ourselves differently by limiting our access to other information, limiting our access, cutting us off from our native language and separating us from our families, right? All of that was an attempt to control the reflections that we had of ourselves. Mm. But I also want to emphasize the violence part, right? Mm. The violence of colonialism, the violence of slavery. And so when someone is faced with literal death, for no other reason than where they're from, right? And, and really not even having the, the cognitive understanding of why you're being kept in chains, of why you're being beaten, I think that we can't underestimate the, the level of violence, whether it be physical beatings, whether it be rape, whether it be having to observe violence happening to your kinfolks, right? And how that really breaks down. That could break down anybody, right? Much less having it be systemic and happening for generation after generation. And so I, you know, when I was 12 or, or 13, I actually wrote a poem called Our Feet, all right? And so I'm not going to recite the whole poem, but the idea is that we learn to hate our feet because they're designed so that shackles cannot slip off. And so because the shackles seem so obstinate, the shackles themselves, the system of racism, the system of colonialism seems so permanent and so fixed, we start to hate our foot. Because if it was shaped differently, maybe if, 
you know, my feet were, were bent in a different way, I could strip these shackles off, right? And so we start to think of our skin tone the same way. Well, maybe if I were a different skin tone, I wouldn't experience this pain. Maybe if my hair texture were different, I wouldn't experience this pain. Because the problem itself, the society itself can seem so overwhelming and so fixed that we feel like we can't change that. But I, maybe I do have control over the way I speak, right? Or maybe I do have control over the way I dress or do my hair or do my makeup. And so that's really where the internalization came from, starting as a matter of survival mm. and then also then transforming and transmuting into something that we really believed was faulty with ourselves. Again, um, part of the resistance to educating folks, and we see that continuing to, to this day, right? Like that's not for no reason why we try to eliminate certain textbooks or not teach certain topics in school is because if you really understood the nature of the problem, you would be empowered to fix it. And so I think uh, to summarize, one is being, having oppressors be able to control the dominant narrative through imagery and through information, mm-hmm. and then two, the physical and emotional and psychological violence that they intentionally um, use that strategy against us as well are the reason why a lot of us internalize it and then turn around and perpetuate it ourselves. I love it. Um, I don't love it, but I, mean, I love I love the response because you uh, you unpack that quite beautifully. Um, there are two or three things jumping in my head right now. Let me try to put them in some order. Um, I want to connect um, that poem you wrote at 12 or 13, Our Feats, to your being uh, 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 impacted in the way that you were uh, by that Malcolm X speech. Uh, and again, I want to mm-hmm. weave these things together. Let me just start by putting you on the spot for a second. Um, you wrote this poem when you were 12 or 13. Do you recall it? Do you remember it? Can you recite it? Um, I think so. I can give it a try. Would you like me to? I, I, you see where I'm going, girl. You 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 are you, you're not just oh, yeah. you're not just brilliant. You're also prophetic and prescient. That's exactly what <laughs> I was getting ready to ask you. So it this is uh, I'm not gonna ask you how old you are now, but I, I it's I'm gonna be really impressed as will the audience. Mm-hmm. That's something you wrote at twelve or thirteen. For the most part, you still remember because clearly this had an impact on you. The, the poem you wrote about mm-hmm. our feats as a child being impacted by Malcolm's speech. I'm going to tie all this together in just a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here is uh, Dr. Sarah L. Well, but she wasn't a doctor then. Um, she was just little Sarah. But here's <laughs> here's the point. The poem that little Sarah wrote called "Our Feats" when she was just twelve or thirteen. Give it to me, Sarah. All right. The real cause of this misery is not flesh. Vainly, we maintain the erstwhile struggle with eye, war with hair, fight with nose. We long to shed our skin, shed our blood lines. We, uh, let's see, let's see. Uh, We hate our feet designed so that shackles cannot slip off. Um, And so it's a really sharp poem. It's Mm -hmm. probably why it's easier to remember it. But, yeah, some of those lines in there have to do with the feature, physical features that we associate with our oppression. Yeah. And instead of being able to war with our oppression, we war with ourselves. At 12 or 13, what was happening in your world that made you so conscious? Because that poem, short though mm-hmm. it may be, is, pa- is, is packed with a lot of stuff that we could unpack if we had the time um, mm-hmm. to interrogate it. But what's happening in your world, your world, your family, where you are that aware, that conscious at 12 or 13 as a black girl? Yeah, so it goes back to that idea of mirrors, right? And so I was blessed to to have access to alternative mirrors that were not being featured in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, so many black girls, black kids, black boys, black people don't have alternative mirrors that affirm who they are. For me, one, I grew up in the era of the neo-soul, right? So looking Mm -hmm. at some of the more popular media, 
Um, you had people like Andy Stone, Indy Irie, Erica Badu, who were on magazine covers and on TV screens. And so I started getting interested in things like natural hair. And I discovered that Malcolm X speech by, you know, Googling natural hair blogs and things like that, as well as some of the words of Marcus Garvey. Um, also, for me, fortunately, I had a mom who went natural before the natural hair movement, right? Mm-hmm. And she used to always tell us stories of how proud she was to be sporting an afro when she was in high school, right? And she told us about people like um, Angela Davis and the Black Panther Party and things like that. And we always watched the movies. We watched the Roots series when it came out. And so I was just blessed to grow up in an immediate household and also in a cultural era where people were going natural and people, you know, were kind of affirming blackness. And so for me, I had the I also had a natural curious mind, right? So like when I was younger, looking up speeches by Malcolm X and just really being touched. And I don't know if it's nature or nurture. It's probably a little bit of both, mm-hmm. to be honest, Tavis, um, that I liked to read and I liked to, to question. And I think I liked to, um, I always had a social justice minded mindset. And so when I looked at my history before you know, wanting long, straight hair. I, I, When I was a little girl, I remember, you know, once praying for long, straight hair that fell down my back. And so I'm thankful and I feel blessed that I was able to see and be exposed to alternative perspe- mm. perceptions and perspectives of who I am in my natural blackness. When we come forward, I'm going to come right back to Malcolm X. Um, we have a... We have a radio play here that we're going to be doing on February 28th. It's called The Return, and it features uh, mm-hmm. yours truly in conversation 50 years later with Martin and Malcolm about contemporary issues that will be premiering on this station on February 28th, uh, as folk know. But I, I'm fascinated by your fascination, even as a child, with Malcolm X. I want to come right back to that part of the story as we advance this conversation about colorism with Dr. Sarah L. Webb. You're listening to her right now on KBLA Talk 1580. African Americans, or so-called Negro, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that it is bad for us to continue to just refer to ourselves as so-called Negro, that's negative. When we say so-called Negro, that's pointing out what we aren't, but it isn't telling us what we are. We are African, and we happen to be in America. We're not American. We are people who formerly were Africans who were kidnapped and brought to America. We... I'm Tavis Smiley. That's Malcolm X at uh, Cornhill Methodist Church, 1965. Uh, I wanted to pay, uh, play, play just a little piece of that um, for our guest, Dr. Sarah L. Webb. Um, in case you've just tuned in, we were talking uh, earlier before news, traffic, and sports about her, uh, the impact that one Malcolm X uh, uh, had on her when she was just a, a youngster. Uh, she recited a poem that she wrote called Our Feats when she was just 12 or 13, um, and given the work that she does around the issue of colorism and featureism and texturism, which we'll get back to here in just a moment, um, not surprised on the one hand, but always fascinated by people's backstories and the ways in which they are influenced by certain people. Most of you know that the greatest influence on my life has been uh, Dr. King. We talked about that this week. And apparently the greatest influence on uh, Sarah L. Webb's life has been Malcolm X. Um, tell me more about that particular speech that we um, uh, played a piece of that you were so impacted by and why Malcolm had such an influence on your on your life. And uh, even all these years later, your work and your witness, Sarah L. Mm-hmm. Webb. 
Yeah, so I think one of the biggest reasons is that, especially at that time, right? So I grew up in the late 80s, 90s. No one was really calling out colorism and futurism the way Malcolm was, right, that I had been exposed to. And although he didn't use those terms, Mm -hmm. for him to talk about the shame that black people about our hair, about our nose, about our skin tone, for him to talk about that so blatantly, I think was refreshing to me. And it was something that I had not seen because as a dark skinned black girl growing up in the United States and experiencing colorism, experiencing the texturism, I was almost gaslit into thinking, well, maybe it's just in my head. Is no one else around me seeing what I'm seeing? Right. And so to have this historical figure who was naming it, naming it for what it was, but also giving me information and insights about where it came from. Right. And so that clip about, you know, us being from Africa, you know, part of that speech is the way that colonizers and people who controlled the narrative through various channels made us feel about where we came from, right? And so portraying Africa in this negative light and portraying Africa as this land of so-called savages and, you know, not, you know, unintelligent people and all these things. And I remember that distinctly growing up in school, right? It was an insult to be called black, all right? You're so black. Are you too black, all right? You need to go back to Africa. You look like you're African. You look like you're from Africa. And those would be insults Mm -hmm. spread by other black people. Um, and so it was really uh, healing to me almost to have this someone speak so eloquently about it. But also, um, I also appreciated the way Malcolm X talked about, you know, black women and reading his autobiography and seeing how, you know, he spelled it out, how, you know, black men are taught to like hate black women. And again, taught, um, using that word specifically in condition might be another good term to use. And so it was just the first time in my life where I heard someone speaking so directly and pointedly to the things that I had observed but hadn't been able to articulate or put language to myself at that time. To the point you just made now, and before I move forward, would it, would it be fair to say that you believe then, given what Malcolm, Brother Malcolm said, uh, fair to say that you believe that uh, most black men are colorist and that most light-skinned women are complicit, that, that they uh, in many ways reinforce mm-hmm. colorism because it's, because, mm-hmm. because it's a privilege for them? Yes, absolutely. And when I say most people are colorists, I want the audience to understand that you can be unconsciously colorist, just like people can have what we call implicit biases. Mm-hmm. And I think that when people say, oh, most people are colorist, they might kind of be taken aback by that. But really, if you live in a racist society, you're likely to be influenced by that racism. And, you know, there are actually implicit association tests. So Harvard has a whole series of, in- of implicit bias tests that you can take, and they have one on color. They have one on colorism, on skin tone. And the majority of people who take that test have a pro-light bias and an anti-dark skin bias, right? People of all races and and backgrounds. And so it is very likely that even if you don't consciously have these attitudes of, oh, lighter is better or, you know, straight hair is better, you're still probably unconsciously influenced by these larger social narratives and ideologies. So I do think it's fair to say that most men and even most people are colorists. But definitely, if you also benefit from colorist, colorism, right, like if you are a light-skinned person, man or woman or, you know, non-binary, you are definitely that much more likely to have that bias because of how you see yourself. Mm. Um, let me pivot now um, to mm. this issue that you raised earlier of the, I think the words you used were deliberate, strategic, and insidious behavior Mm-hmm. of these white colonizers, these white supremacists vis-a-vis this issue of colorism. And let me just ask directly, the violence that they use 
to engage um, this activity was for what purpose? Put another way, what did the good white folk gain back then from seeding this colorism amongst black people? What did they gain from dividing us by dark and light? Mm. At the end of the day, it's about power. Mm. And whether that power comes through money, property, political clout or social clout, or just their own sense of self, right? And I talk about how damaged white people must be in order to in order for them to feel remotely good about themselves to have to enact so much violence across the world about their deficit. However, the what all oppressors know is that you have to in order to maintain the power that you're trying to construct for yourself, you ultimately need the other people to participate in that, right? Because I think what the original colonizers colonizers knew and what the current colonizers know is that when people get hip to the game, when they get hip to the conspiracies, then they're empowered to fight back. And so the reason why, you know, they leveraged something like colorism was to then have the black people, I'll say that, have black people, African-Americans, enslaved people, not put up a fight mm. to to sort of be able to, you know, there's the saying that if you teach a black man that he deserves to go to the back door, you won't have to make him go to the back door. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was their big game that they not only could construct a system in which they had power, but they can maintain that power because now the people you want to dominate over and rule over are cooperating. Right. So they needed our cooperation. And I hope the audience is listening as well. Oppression needs our cooperation in order to work. And so now with information and knowledge and the power and resources and agency we have in this day and age, we can stop cooperating in oppressive systems. Mm. Um, how likely is that, you think, to happen? And I ask that because, um, as we all know, uh, they, we are taught that if you can do something for 21 days, <laughs> then uh, it, creates, <laughs> it creates a habit. This ain't 21 days. It's a whole lot more uh, than 21 <laughs> days. We've been at this a long time, behaving or misbehaving, mm. as it were, in this way. So I hear your point. A lot, mm. easier, said, a lot easier said than done that that, that behavior, yeah. that that mindset can be arrested or challenged. Well, absolutely. Well, two things. One is I think ignoring colorism all these years is part of the reason why we keep spinning our wheels Mm -hmm. in these systems. Um, A lot of people, even people who are really conscious and aware about racism, right, as a larger umbrella idea, they want to condone colorism. They want to condone the texture. They want to say, yeah, let's fight white supremacy, but I still want to be light-skinned. All right, let's fight white supremacy, but I still don't want an Afro. I don't want to look, I don't want my hair to be too quote-unquote nappy, right? And so we are, you know, trying to bring a knife to an atomic war. Mm. <laughs> you know, say so bring a knife to a gunfight. Mm. We want to uh, combat white supremacy by bringing a knife to an atomic war. And so I think a lot of us underestimate the level of effort it takes to resist the current. And so another thing to keep in mind is that even when we make moves, white supremacist systems are also making moves, right? It's not like we are moving in one direction unimpeded. And so it's really like swimming upstream, swimming against the current, because for every um, positive affirmation we try to put forth for ourselves, we're going to be flooded with 
masses of, you know, the Kim Kardashians or the Jennifer Lopez's or, you know, all of the, the light skin and the straight hair. We're bombarded with that day in and day out. And so we can't just tell uh, our dark skinned artist she's beautiful on Tuesday and, and think we're done for the week. You know, because of all she's going to be exposed to or all our, our sons are going to be exposed to. And so I think part of the, the issue in terms of is it possible? I think, yes, right? Like, technically, it is possible. Now, is it likely? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the other question. No. And is, are we really willing to get uncomfortable and to not just be lulled into complacency because we can't afford certain pairs of shoes or certain types of cars yeah. and thinking we've made it, you know? It's that age-old debate between possibility and plausibility, right? <laughs> They're not the same thing. Um, I digress. Uh, more with Dr. Sarah L. Webb talking about colorism when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Sarah L. Webb talking about colorism. That song is called Cloud Nine from Donnie. Uh, if... Uh, not heard that song before shame on you it's a powerful powerful song that album was amazing uh again the artist's name is donnie and that track is called cloud nine um it's it, it it's always fascinating to me uh, uh dr sarah l webb when you have all kinds of artists um we played a few in this hour from india Ari to donnie who are so moved by this conversation uh about hair and about colorism and featureism and texturism that they literally write songs uh, trying to advance a conversation as artists about these issues. Um, and it's always fascinating for me, uh, particularly when they do it in such a way that's so creative that you can't deny it, you can't ignore it, and it's just a great piece of artistic creativity. Uh, what say you, though, about the way that artists have taken on these subjects in their works down through the years? <laughs> well, I just have to say, I appreciate the music you've been playing this hour. I've been dancing in the office <laughs> as the songs play. And good, I think good, that's part good. of the impact yeah. um, of this art form. And so I think I keep, you know, using the idea of the mirror, right? And things like imagery and the power of narratives and storytelling and representation, you know, representation matters. And so I am grateful, again, for artists like Donnie and like NDRE and, you know, artists, you know, James Brown and, you know, mm -hmm. all of these artists who have made songs. Um, even think about Roberta Flack and uh, Donnie Hathaway, that song, Be Real Black for Me, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that throughout our history as black people, artists have played a very pivotal role in filling that gap of representation and filling that gap of the imagery, right? Especially when their image aligns with their message, right? And so they're not just saying, be proud of your blackness, but they're like, being an embodied example of that, right? Which is why I think someone like Donnie and NDRE in particular are such powerful examples of that. Um, and I think because of their reach, you know, um, they're going to reach a lot more people than even me as someone who advocates and talks about colorism every day. There are just going to be masses of people who will not hear my words as opposed to a song that plays on the radio. And yeah. so I think that they are, have been very powerful and instrumental in going in the past, and hopefully they continue going forward. When we come forward, speaking of going forward, I, I take the cue. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, ma'am. I take the cue. <laughs> uh, when we come forward, uh, I want to offer as I exit question. We talked about uh, light-skinned folk earlier. Uh, and the fact that uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Webb uh, believes that most of us are colorists, all of us are colorists at some level, but there are some light-skinned folk who benefit from the privilege of colorism. The flip side of that is dark-skinned people, and I'm wondering whether or not there are any uh, uh, privileges, pretty or otherwise, 
that dark-skinned people get in the, in this dynamic. We'll close with that and maybe one or two other things. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Dr. Sarah L. Webb on KBLA Talk 1580. Getting your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Dr. Sarah L. Webb on KBLA Talk 1580. Just three minutes left in this uh, conversation. I've enjoyed this hour immensely, learned a great deal. But just a few minutes left. Let me offer this as the exit question. Um, colorism, featureism, texturism, phenotype. Are there any privileges for the dark-skinned people, Dr. Webb? So definitely dark-skinned people can have privilege. One of them is gender privilege, right? And so when we think about the differences in how a dark-skinned man navigates, you know, American society compared to a dark-skinned woman, there's going to be a level of privilege because of things like sexism and patriarchy. But also something like featureism and texturism, there are a lot of darker-skinned people who have what we might consider pretty, pretty privilege. And so even though they are dark-skinned, people say, oh, well, you're the cute dark-skinned girl, right? So you're passable, mm. right? And so it's, you know just as shameful, but still it allows them to navigate these systems in a way that, you know, other girls or other men who have a kinkier hair texture or have broader noses and fuller lips might not. I think another one might be size privilege, right? Even myself as a dark-skinned woman, I'm a skinny dark-skinned woman. And so I don't experience the same level of ostracization or, you know, stigmatization as someone who has my skin tone but is also in a larger body or whose skin tone yeah. might be a little shades even darker than mine. So we all have to be honest and interrogate where we fall yeah. in these larger systems of oppression. Quick exit question here. Are there two or three things that come to mind? I got one on my mind right now, but are there two or three things that come to mind for you? You're the expert that we say to each other commonly regarding color, that just phrases and words that we use with each other commonly intra-black America that we ought to stop saying to each other? Mm. So you can say things, stop saying, stop acting light skin mm. or saying, you know, don't, don't go out in the sun. I don't want to get too dark or you don't want to get too dark mm. or saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that my, I got my complexion back after the summer. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that's a good list. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's a really good list. And I, I was thinking the one you got kind of already teed up. Um, she's cute for a dark-skinned girl, you know, stuff like that. I, I, I take your point. Uh, I take your point. Her name is Dr. Sarah L. Webb, uh, international speaker, consultant, the coach who started the Global Initiative Colorism Healing. And that's what we've been trying to do in this hour, talking about colorism and featureism and texturism, uh, trying to let the healing begin. Dr. Webb, thank you for your work and your witness. Thank you for this conversation. Good to have you on. All the best to you. Thank you. You too, Tavis. This is Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580.